Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, just a fair warning today, uh, the sermon is pretty dense in terms of you putting on your thinking caps. You up for that? We fed you donuts earlier, people. Come on. Um, okay, uh, some of you are like, there were donuts? Dang it. Um, okay, so maybe you said this this week. I know it happened for a couple times uh, with me. You said this this week. I cannot believe it. Anybody have that happen this week? I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it that my coworker did this, or I cannot believe it that this person, you know, did that, or that succeeded, or I cannot believe it that it came out the way that it did, or whatever it may be. I cannot believe that the Astros almost didn't make the playoffs. But they did, Tobes, am I right? I'm all right. Uh, uh, I, I cannot believe the Congress almost shut the dang thing down, you know? I mean, dumb situation in... DC. By the way, if you have any hope in DC, is it gone now? People, come on now. Is it gone? Okay. Uh, uh, yesterday, just yesterday, some of us are in the room who would be celebrating this. Uh, there was a certain comeback on a football field, 29 points worth with four minutes left in the third quarter. And we could not believe it that a certain beloved team of mine and a couple of others in here in green and gold came back and beat the mighty knights of uni uh, the university of central florida sorry sandra hurley wherever you are they did win um so when we talk about i cannot believe it most of the time what we're doing like in that moment right there is talking about disbelief because you're like shocked what what's happening today we're really talking about unbelief and the difference is uh, disbelief is kind of what happens to us when something shocking comes along. Unbelief is really a posture of the heart. It, it is a way that we have placed ourselves, structured our lives. Uh, it's a way that we uh, build our thought systems, unbelief. Jesus addresses two particular ones here in John chapter 7, and then he goes to work to overcome our unbelief. And that's what we're talking about today. Two kinds of unbelief. We'll start in John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, uh, go, uh, yeah, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Let's just pause right there. Everybody's up to speed on Feast of Booths. No review needed, right? Well, just in case, how about this? Uh, just in case uh, you've slept since then, since you, you know, read in Leviticus, uh, the Feast of Booths was um, kind of at the end of the harvest season, and there were two major themes. One was sincere and abundant gratitude. Gratitude for all that God had done for them during that year. They had harvested it all. They were sitting in abundance. and They were like, Lord, you have been ridiculously good to us. Then they would go outside of their house or outside of their normal dwelling or build it up on the roof or in the courtyard. Anybody ever gone camping in their backyard? This is that, okay? So they would build a little temporary shelter and they would live there for a week. Why? Because it's a reminder that, yes, God has been abundantly good, but we don't need to get too attached to this place because this is not home, ultimately. Is that sticking with anybody? Abundance of God's goodness. Let's celebrate. And in the same moment, have the perspective to remind ourselves this is not home, ultimately. That's what's happening in the Feast of Booths. So, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples uh, also may see the works you are doing. When he says his brothers, that's like his legitimate, like, brothers, brothers. 
Uh, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you as it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go on up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, let's just pause here, and we'll take these two kinds of unbelief that Jesus identifies uh, in order. Uh, The first one is something along the lines of agenda. agenda. And it sounds something like this. If you're the Messiah, you wouldn't act this way. Uh, in, in particular, his brothers are like, hey, look, we don't believe in you, but you say you do all these miracles and stuff. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people going to Jerusalem. You could become an influencer in a moment. Just roll in there and snap your fingers and make the magic happen. And boom, people would just know that you're the Messiah. Because nobody who really wants to be the Messiah, nobody who really wants to be the Messiah acts like you do in secret. But the reality of church family is the vast majority of the things that God does for the sake of the kingdom that are deep-rooted and lasting and eternal are done where? In secret. In here. You put a seed in the ground, in the dirt, put a, throw some water on it, maybe some fertilizer. And what do you know? Nothing, except that there's a plant later. How the thing unfolds, you don't know. It's secret. The vast majority of the things that God does that are worthwhile are done where? In secret. So Jesus is just not going to bow to their agenda or bow to their uh, uh, particular way of doing things. He's not going to. It sounds a little bit like this for us. If it's not, if, if the accusation uh, is shame on you, God, shame on you, God, for acting like this. Shame on you, God, for doing this. Shame on you, God, for allowing that. Shame on you, God, for not doing this other thing. Hello, you should have not allowed that to happen. If the accusation is a little much, shame on you, God, then, then, the question is, goes something like this. If the accusation is a little much, the question would say, why, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? Your agenda is messed up. If you were really God, why in the world would you act like this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, if you will, just step with me inside of that question for just a moment. Crawl up into that question. There's a couple things that are true. Number one, you assume in that moment right there that there are things that are objectively, meaning outside of you, objectively good and objectively bad. Is that fair? Fair. Secondly, you assume that you are actually the best judge of whether those things are good or bad. Also fair? Because if bad things are happening to good people, there's an objective standard outside of me, and I'm standing outside going, that's not not good at all. There's a, a disconnect a serious disconnect right there uh, between those two. And so I'll just give you a couple questions to ponder, all right? Are there good people? That's number one. The Bible testifies and says this, that we are all made in God's image. And everyone has inherent value because of that. And, not but, but and, and uh, the, the sinfulness that is ours has broken us. And we are wrecked on the inside so, are there good people? Well, no, valued people, but not good people. So, are there good people? That, that's one question. Second question, um, are, are you smart enough to know the difference between good and bad? That's a fair question. And what, why is that a fair question? 
because there have been times, and maybe this is not you. Maybe you've got a, maybe you're batting a thousand. Um, I'm batting somewhere on the Mendoza line on this deal, but it's something along the lines like there are times when I look back and I go, boy, I didn't read that right. What I thought was bad, it actually turned out good. What I thought was good, well, I'm not so sure, right? Are you smart enough? Thirdly, is there in your mind a legitimate reason that something could happen to you that may produce something down the road? So I'll just give you an example of this. Uh, For you parents in here, maybe you've gone through this before, um, where you take your kid to a doctor uh, for um, maybe they've got to get an immunization or they've got some other form of shot, right? They've got to get a shot. So I just want to be clear. I want to describe this from the outside. You are taking your kid to a place, some cold, sterile place, where somebody um, who's most of the time behind a mask and looks a little scary is going to jab your kid with a metal object. And cause them pain. You may think to yourself, yeah, but the good that's going to come from if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father, this is Jesus in Matthew 7, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to his? Sometimes there are legitimate reasons that God allows things to happen in our lives that we cannot see, we may not see for quite some time. All we know is we're in some sterile environment with scary people around who are poking us with things. And our Father says, you trust me on this. Watch what I'm going to do. Getting Jesus on our agenda is not how the relationship works. But it's a key expression of our unbelief. Not disbelief, our unbelief. The posture of our heart. Second, speaking up in verse 10. But after this, his, uh, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. He's not on their agenda. He's on the Father's agenda. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the good people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? (laughs) What they're talking about is he didn't come from a a studying underneath a rabbi. Like, he didn't come from the rabbinical tradition or school. How is this even possible? The, The second kind of unbelief sounds something like this. It's an affirmation. The unbelief of affirmation that says, If you were the Messiah, you wouldn't talk like this. Again, uh, well, some said he's a good man. Others like, no, man, he's leading the people astray. Don't listen to that fellow. How, how is this guy even learning? He has no degrees. He never went to seminary. What's the deal? Typical responses when God says something like this that we don't like. And oh, by the way, anybody have the moment where God says something that you don't like? So some of you are like, no, never. Yes, ever, right? I, like, when God says it, typical responses go something like this. Well, that's not really God talking right now. <laughs> I mean, he didn't mean it. You know, like that was for a different day or a different time or a different setting or a different situation. I am the unique exception to this very, very unfriendly rule. Or something like, well, he's not really God at all in this moment. Like, let's just take, and we'll just redefine the nature of our relationship in this moment. Or, or I, this is more honest, I just flat don't care. Thanks for your advice, I ain't taking it. But here's the deal. 
Some of us don't want a God who will uh, contradict us or disagree with us. Like we'd love for that. But if you have a God who will not contradict you or disagree with you, you don't have a God, you have a mirror that is reflecting to you your preferences and your prejudices that are already there. Any relationship that you have, I don't care if it's your co-worker, I don't care if it's your friend, your neighbor, um, your spouse, your kids, certainly your kids, um, any relationship, there is the um, a capability of someone and oftentimes the experience of being disagreed with or being e- even told, no, you're flat wrong on this. Why would it be different in our relationship with God? Why would God just tell me the stuff that I like? Of course, there are going to be points where he and I are going to disagree. The deal is, though, he's the one who is right. He's the one who's right. If, if there's not a God who can disagree with me, um, even contradict me, then I am living in an echo chamber. That's where I'm living. So, in light of that, how then, in, in light of these two kinds of unbelief, how then does Jesus go to work to overcome unbelief? Um, we're going to pick up, I'm going to start in verse 14 and then come back down to 16. About, just for context, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Again, no degrees, no rabbinical tradition that he's pulling from, anything like that. And so verse 16, Jesus says, so Jesus answered him, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus is working to overcome unbelief in their hearts and in our hearts by doing three things. Number one, he is staying rooted. He's staying rooted. He is not appealing to some uh, rabbi who was this many years ago or that many years ago. I, I had this conversation yesterday with someone. I was the um, teaching assistant uh, for someone at the seminary I went to. And boy, he, there was some wisdom that came my way from that. And so every so often I say, well, you know, he said, blah, 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 and I kind of offload. This is not Jesus, though. He's not quoting somebody else. He is delivering what God has said to him and is going to speak through him. He's staying rooted. So I just point you to somewhere a little bit later. If you're a user of the Bible app, it's uh, down towards the bottom of the, uh, of the notes there. In chapter 12, verse 49 and 50, here's what he says. For I have not spoken of my own authority. Jesus is speaking. I have not spoken of my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is committed to saying what God has told him to do. Like the Father speaks and Jesus speaks. The Father has told him what to do, and he is speaking. So he's committed to this. Secondly, um, Jesus is the actual point of everything that the Father is saying. In John chapter 5, we've done this probably six or seven times in our sermons in John. But in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. He is the point of what God is saying. And lastly, he is in the flow. I didn't really know how else to say this. He is in the flow of God's revelation. He's not appealing to someone else. He's not appealing to a historical precedent. He's not appealing to anything. He's saying God is speaking and I am in the flow of everything. Okay? And in doing so, what he's saying is 
I am being consistent with what God has said and what he has revealed about himself. I'm not contradicting anything. I'm not changing anything. I'm not, uh, you know, flipping a, a head over to a tail or making an A into a B. I'm just telling you, I am in the flow of everything that God is saying. That is important because there are religious traditions out there that say, well, the, this version of deity, whomever it may be, for instance, in Quranic studies with uh, um, our Muslims friends, um, in Quranic studies, uh, Allah may speak one thing and then later in the historical record may speak something else, and this was precedent over that, because even though they contradict, this came later. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying I'm contradicting anything. He's saying God has been saying the same thing from the beginning, and he is working his way all the way through. And I'm in, I am being consistent with everything that he has said. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, the food laws, the food laws in the Old Testament, they were always intended to be temporary. In fact, in the Old Testament are shown to be temporary at times. David takes a, uh, 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 David and some of his uh, fellows are running through and uh, they, they run across again. No, dude, we're hungry. He's like, all I've got is the showbread from the temple. It was a big no-no to eat the bread from the temple, from the uh, tabernacle there. And yet David ate it. Why? Because food laws were intended to be temporary. Otherwise, we would not be enjoying bacon and shrimp. Let the church say amen. Amen. Stop. Sabbath. Sabbath was temporary. Jesus even explains, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, we'll pick up one specific example here at the end of the sermon um, where he says this, but in another place, he looks at the guys who are all fussing about this and he says, look, if your donkey was down in the ditch, when you pull your donkey out, you're not going to leave him overnight. Well, yeah, we would. Oh, if it's a donkey, don't you? Like, these are the kinds of things that Jesus is, is uh, doing. So there's some of that stuff that was intended, intended, cons- it was consistently shown even, to be temporary. There are other things, though, that very much on principle, not necessarily on practice, but on principle, carry forward. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Idolatry. Idolatry is still wrong. It's still wrong. And you think to yourself, well, I don't have an idol. I don't have some, you know... St- animal-shaped statue uh, that I bow down to, unless it's outside of a sports stadium. Most of our idols are not visible. In our particular context, suburban life, two that I run into the most often, our safety, as if God isn't worth our risk, And our success, most of the time, for our kids. Those are the idols that we bow down to. Paul says stuff like uh, covetousness. It's idolatry. Meaning what? Meaning like what you're saying in that moment is, God, you're not enough for me. I need that too. Idolatry carries forward. It looks different today than it does in the first century, but it still carries forward. Another one, um, immorality. Immorality carries forward because it's not the best way of life. Paul would write this in 1 Thessalonians 4 and say this. This is your sanctification. This is the way that you give expression to the holiness which God has put in you. Your, uh, 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 your, like you would practice the things that, that God intends in this particular area of your life. You would not practice immorality. It is not what is best for you. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, you abstain from sexual immorality. That carries forward. Been true back then, true today. He, Jesus is staying rooted. 
And what he said. So our response then is simply to abide, abide in God's word. I'll point you one place. Uh, you can look this up here in a little bit. But John chapter 8, verse 31, it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, these very Jews in chapter 7 that he's talking about and talking to. Jesus said uh, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then truly, truly you are my disciples. And you will know the truth. And what happens? The truth sets you free. John 8, 31, 32. We root ourselves with Jesus. We root ourselves with him. And in doing so, uh, we live the life that he wants. Second thing that he does to combat and overcome our unbelief. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. He invites willingness. He invites willingness. What, what do you mean by that? Well, simply, Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to know what I'm saying is right, just try it. Like, just give it a shot. You think your way is better. Maybe you want to try that first. I'm telling you, my way, it's better. And if you don't, you really want to know if this is reality. Try it. Try it. Um, so, a cu- couple things under this. Number one, debate. Debate. And there's a lot of it today. Uh, debate can clarify issues, but it cannot settle them. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And in particular measures of faith, in, in, in situations revolving around faith, um, it can, debate can clarify the issues, but it cannot settle them. Why? Because there is a moral component. Now, faith is inherently moral. The, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that it's not just a practice of the mind. It is not just an intellectual issue. Faith is far more than that. The reformers, 1500s, when they uh, um, separated from uh, the, at the time, uh, they separated from the Catholic Church and kind of set the West on the trajectory that we're on right now. The reformers had a three-legged stool that they talked about when they talked about faith. They talked about the intellect. And the question around that was, is it true? There are things that we need to know. Jesus has died for our sins and in our place. He has risen bodily so that we can experience life with him forever. He will come again. I mean, these are critical, important things in the intellect. Is it true? The second part, though, they, they noted, like, but that, has, that truth has to stir your affections for it to be faith. It can't just be a, a practice of giving mental assent to a set of facts. There is a, an affection get, that gets stirred inside of you. There are things that rise up within you. There, there are... Uh, ways that your heart, if you will, kind of gets turned over because of the truth that is out there for you. The question of intellect is, is it true? The question of your affections is, is it beautiful? And some of you know what this is like when you step into a situation. It could be a sunset uh, in nature. It can be a moment with somebody that you love. It can be, but you have that thing where you're like, man, this is beautiful and my affections are just The third part, though, is the part that completes faith. You've got the intellect asking if it's true. You've got the, um, your affections being stirred, asking if it's beautiful. And the third part is volition, a will, the, the choice part of this, to say, is it worth it? Is it worthy of my action? How do you deem, let's, let's take the chair that you're sitting in, how do you deem the chair worthy? I mean, you could analyze it, right? You could be like two. It's got four legs. That's a good start. Those four legs seem to be connected in some version of stability. Also a good start. There's a, a back on it that seems to be screwed in just right so that it, you know, if I lean back in it, it it'll hold me. Um, there, there are, uh, uh, you know, things that help me cushion like this is good. And then you think to yourself, well, it is cushiony. I kind of like that. Your affections are being stirred. I kind of like, this is far better than sitting on a metal bleacher. Amen? 
Amen. So you have these things that rise up within you because you know the the analysis of it. Um, is it true? Does it look right? And you know the affections of it. Oh, it not only looks right, like I'm I, like it looks soft and comfy, and this is going to be good. But there's only one way to know if you genuinely trust the chair, and how is that? To put your rear end in it. There's only so much analysis and only so much affection that goes with this. Is it true? Is it beautiful? And ultimately, is it worthy? Is it worthy of my trust to express that trust? My volition, my will has to get involved. Obedience then. When we express ourselves in this way, when we hear his invitation and we um, uh, step in with our willingness, obedience then results in its own authentication. Like we step in and we try it. And Jesus says, and then you figure out that it's true. You figure out that it's beautiful. You figure out that it's worthy. Obedience results in authentication. And furthermore, just as a parenthesis, um, it, it shows an inc- the inconsistency of life separate from this. Uh, keep reading for just a minute. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is saying, Mo- Moses said, don't murder. Dude, you're trying to murder me. This is not good. If you really want to know what I'm saying is true, try it. But you're saying some things are true, and you're trying to do the opposite of what those things are, what those things are saying. Like, this is bad. It's inconsistent. He's inviting us the, uh, the, he's inviting us to willingness. Inviting our willingness. He, he does so to pursue our yes. He does so to, to, to pursue our response. Because just as our best response to him staying rooted is to stay rooted with him, to abide in his word, when he invites our willingness, our best response is just to say yes. Um, a few weeks ago, this is actually several months ago now, uh, went to Walmart to purchase a bunch of gift cards that we were uh, giving away to various people. The nice manager at Walmart came over, excuse me, sir, do you mind telling me why in the world you're buying this much? I mean, it was 1500 bucks or something of gift cards, Walmart gift cards. Do you mind telling me why this is, why are you doing this? I tell you, mind your own business. No, sir, you don't understand. We have some people who come in here who've been scammed. And in doing this, they actually open up their accounts to these scammers. And I repented in that moment. I mean, just like that, I was like, thank you so much for caring about our community. You're my best new friend. You want a selfie? Click. I mean, like, I was like, thank you for caring. I mean, like the manager of Walmart's looking out for the community. Amen and amen and amen. By the way, you don't pay the IRS in Walmart gift cards, just so that everybody's on the same page here. Can you imagine giving someone unfettered access to your account? Just like, yeah, you're in. Come on. Some of you have done that exact same thing. It's the person sitting next to you wearing your ring. But the access was based on the yes. It was based on the covenant. It was based on the willingness to join yourself to him or her. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about he pursues us for our yes. We open up ourselves to him and we go, God, our yes is on the table. We know what you've done for us. Our yes is on the table. He invites 
our willingness. Thirdly, quickly, uh, he, he is to overcome, um, excuse me, to overcome our unbelief. He stays rooted in a story that God is telling, and the story specifically is telling in Jesus. He invites our willingness, and thirdly, he keeps the mission. Verse 21, uh, verse 20, excuse me. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus said to him, I did one work, um, and, and you all marvel at it. So this is the work that he did in John chapter 5. He healed the guy um, at the pool. And uh, he walked up and he's like, hey, brother, you okay? He's like, no, nah, man, I've been here laying 38 years and nobody's here to help me get into the water. And Jesus is like, you don't need no stink of water. Get up. Take your mat. Get out of here. Don't ever come back. And the guy got up and then he got in trouble for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Okay. So uh, he, that, that's what he's referring to. Verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. That's not from Moses, but from the fathers. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So the mission is wholeness. That's the mission. The keeping mission and the mission is wholeness. And the logic of Jesus goes something like this. You got a kid who's born on a Friday, and he's uh, as, a, as a Jewish man or a Jewish male. He's supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day, and so from Friday to, to the next day, would, it would be the Sabbath. So, which law do you break? Do you keep the Sabbath and not circumcise the kid on the eighth day, or do you circumcise the kid on, on the eighth day and not keep the Sabbath? Which one? Jesus is pointing out their inconsistencies. You choose one for the other, and Jesus is saying, "Look." You're working to make this one particular child right before God. And I'm working to make us right before God. You, you're working so that one portion of him is right before God. And I am putting, bringing a kind of wholeness to everybody. This is what I want to do. The mission is wholeness. This is what he's after. That's the logic behind what he's saying. Uh, I, I just note here that he expected opposition... And so should we? So should we. Uh, just give you some from the chapter here. We'll just touch on them real quick. Uh, preconceived notions from his brothers. Dude, if you were really the Messiah, you'd go up right now to where all the people are and make the magic happen. Preconceived notions. Secondly, the opinions of the crowds. Um, there's muttering about him. He's a good man. Uh, he's leading the people astray. Thirdly, speculation of others. How is this man teaching us? When he's never actually had learning. What is that about? Fourthly, accusation of leaders. You have a demon. Okay. Uh, and then lastly, and this is the one I think most apropos to our particular situation. The superficiality of culture. Look at verse 24. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We judge by appearances. We think something is successful because it's... Big, loud, bright, shiny, whatever it may be. But yet God is the one who works in secret. And so he works to overcome our unbelief, even in the face of opposition. And church family, listen, there will always be superficial people here. And we, we are the people who are invited into something below the surface, something beyond superficiality. And we get to invite others beyond superficiality. Last point, just quickly. The kingdom, if you're looking for it, you cannot understand it apart from the mission of wholeness. You just can't. You cannot understand the kingdom apart from the mission of wholeness. Last word on this, okay? Then we're going to take communion together. So many messages in our culture are longing for restoration. God, would you fix what was? Church family, 
Listen to me. You don't understand the kingdom unless you understand wholeness. Jesus is not about restoration. He's about resurrection. I'm bringing something new. I'm not fixing what was. It would still be what was. I am bringing something new out of this. You want, you had death. I'm not just like resuscitating somebody. I'm bringing eternal life. You want spiritual, you want sight out of this blindness. I am not just fixing somebody's eyes. I want them to be able to see what is real and true and good and beautiful. Don't, when, when, you, when it comes to the kingdom, don't miss the fact that Jesus is not going to just evacuate us out of here to heaven. He is bringing heaven to us. That's the deal. The kingdom is about wholeness. And you don't get the kingdom if you don't get that. How did he prove this? On the cross. And at the empty grave. This is what he's done for us. He's inviting us past superficiality. He's inviting us past our unbelief. The postures of our hearts that say, God, we don't, we don't think you're doing it right. And we don't think you're talking to us very nicely. He has stepped into our world to show us that he knows exactly what he is doing. And he is doing so on a level. On a level that will change and transform us forever. And that's what we come to celebrate. Let's pray together. As you uh, kind of get ready for communion, if you need to fold your stuff up or whatever it is, feel free to just do so. And I'm going to ask our brothers who are going to serve us this morning, would you go ahead and come forward? Uh, Father, thank you for uh, your willingness and your capability to overcome our unbelief. I'm sure, I am sure that there are parts of us that are still on the struggle bus when it comes to this. So help us, God. Help us. Where, where you need uh, to change us, would you show it to us so that we can bring it to you? Nowhere is this proven more, Jesus, than when you um, died for us in our place for our sins. Where you rose again to guarantee us the kind of life that lasts forever. And is indestructible even by death. Oh God, we praise you for that. Thank you. And I ask now as we practice, uh, celebrate this tradition, remind ourselves via this practice of what you've done. God, would you set it down fresh on us? And remind us we don't have to settle for um, what is behind being fixed. Like you really can bring a resurrection. This is what we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.